because I think you need to hear it from me. The Lovewell Conference started last year as a way for us to launch what we called the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality Course. You remember that? And do you remember? I don't know, maybe you didn't feel it the way I felt it. But when you, last year, we only expected like maybe 40 people to sign up. I would have been happy if 40 people signed up to the Lovewell Conference last year. So we were only expecting a handful. Well, you know, to fill half of a room. We had nearly 200 people come, which told me that God is at work doing something in your hearts. And God has been at work doing something in my heart for the past nine or 10 years with the whole Emotionally Healthy Spirituality journey. I waited 10 years to introduce this to the congregation, and we introduced it last year at Love Well. So those of you who have been a part of New Life and made New Life your home, there's some significance to this thing. So we decided that we would keep Love Well as a conference to help remind us that the transformation that we need in our lives needs to go beyond the surface, and it needs to go deeper. And how much deep, deeper can you go when you're starting to talk about the way you really live your life when no one's looking? That's what Lovewell has intend, is intending to address. The quality of your relationships with your spouse, with your children, with your friendships, right? The reason why you can't say no to everyone who asks you to do something for them. The reason why you got divorced. And the reason why you've had a string of failed relationships. You see, these are practical issues that the principles that we introduce in Love Well and Emotionally Healthy Spirituality will address. The reason why some of you just have a hard time resting and doing nothing for a little while, like God tells us to do at least one day out of the week, right? Um, we're going to talk about marriage at Love Well. We're gonna, there's going to be a guy that's coming, I think I told you this last time I was here, who's done, he hold, did his whole dissertation. He's, a, he's a, um, a PhD student, or was, got his PhD, and he did groundbreaking research on the lives of pastors all over America. And then re, the research yielded information that you're going to want to know, not just, I know most of you aren't pastors, but if you lead in a a ministry in any way, shape, or form, if you lead your family, all of these principles apply. And he's going to be sharing, he's going to be talking on Friday night about the findings of this research. It'll be very instructive for us. Chuck Shoemake is coming. You know who Chuck Shoemake is? Chuck Shoemake was the guy that I would call whenever I had issues, whenever I had problems, because Foursquare pastors, how many of you know even Foursquare pastors have problems in their marriage? How many of you know Foursquare pastors struggle with addiction too? How many of you know Foursquare pastors um, secretly despise some of their own flock? <laughs> and there, you can't talk to your own people about that stuff. So guess who we called? We called Chuck Shoemake. For many years he served as the care pastor for all the Foursquare pastors in our denomination. He's going to be here. He's going to be here on Sunday of Love Well as well, speaking on the Sunday morning service. So listen, we got, we got our district supervisor is coming, who's been, a, who's been in, a, in a battle with cancer for the past five years. 
He's going to talk about what do you do when God doesn't heal you? How do you lead your family? How do you lead a whole district? How do you lead in ministry when, when you're fighting a chronic illness and you're going through some very difficult, challenging times? See, Angie Ritchie is coming. Angie is a, a wonderful gal. She's a marriage and family therapist, but she serves at Life Pacific University. She's going to talk to us about mental health. She's going to talk to us about, Nara mentioned Gen Z. If those of you who don't know who Gen Z is, my children are Gen Z. Those are, if, you, if your kids are in that age range, they're Generation Z. They're different than the millennials. And she, she's done fabulous research on, on this topic, and she's going to present how we actually prepare to lead Generation Z in a good way. So uh, I want to just put out one of these, these last invitations for you to sign up. Now, listen. You know, um, if you grew up, how many of you grew up in a large family? Yeah? Where, you know, maybe you got served last or maybe you got served, you know, in the middle. How many of you um, enjoyed everything your parents put on the table every single night? Okay, that's great, wonderful for you, but I'm pretty sure that some of you were like, you know what, you're serving up spaghetti again? Uh, no, thank you, right? But how many of you know, like when you're a part of a big family, no matter what they put on the table, you know it's for your nourishment even if you don't like it, even if it's not your preference. You eat it because you're part of the family. Now, of course, if they're serving you poison, don't eat it. As a church, those of you who call New Life home, I want to encourage you, let's grow together as a family through Love Well. This is our opportunity as a congregation to sit and learn together from people, from prophetic voices outside our own congregation that will put a good deposit into us when it comes to helping us follow Jesus more, more deeply. All right? That's just what Love Well is really all about. And it's here to stay. There are a bunch of pastors that have been invited to this conference that are not even a part of this church. So this is bigger than us. And I don't want you to miss out. Some of you are thinking, you know what, pastor? 50 bucks is way too much. I've got me. I've got my spouse. I've got my, you know, whoever else in the family. If it's really, listen, if cost is really an issue, I want you to talk to me. I will sponsor four people today. If you, if you really can't afford the cost, I'll sponsor four of you today. Come up to me after service and we'll get you registered. Right? That's how committed I want. I, I don't want there to be any excuses for that. I get it. Some of you scheduled other things. Some of you made other priorities. No problem. It's okay. We still love you. <laughs> but Love Well is, is coming and it's here to stay. And it's part of our way and part of my way of leading us as a church into the realms of emotionally healthy discipleship that we, hardly anybody is talking about. These are places that we want, we don't just want to be changed, we want to be changed by Jesus deeply at the core. Amen? Amen. I was about to say amen to what Nara, she started preaching up here for a second, man. Sign me up three times, Nara. You know, I'm ready. Sign up for Love Well. Um, this morning, I want to talk to you about, my heart is full this morning. There's so many things I feel like I need to just share with you today. Um, summer is over. Pretty much. Those of you who have kids are going back to school. My kid's going back. I have a high school. My, my son is going to high school, man. He's a freshman. Can you believe that? He's registering for uh, ninth grade next, uh, on Tuesday. Yeah, it's crazy. And he's almost as tall as me now. And time flies. really does. And um, I don't even know why. Oh, I, I know why I brought that up. Because um, 
Over the summer, my kids, many of you know my kids play competitive sports. And, um, <laughs> you know, they just happen to choose a sport that's really frustrating for me. It's not frustrating, you know, they, they, they're all tennis players. It's not frustrating playing because I love playing tennis, but it's frustrating when you watch them play. And I'll tell you why in a second. But uh, those of you who have kids who play any kinds of sports, how many of you know that when you're playing in competitive sports, in America especially, like you, you end up like taking on sort of a win-lose mentality? Isn't that true? Yeah. You got, I mean, it's, well, when you're really a, a, a pro, it's all about the money and all that and stuff. But, but when you're just learning, right, like the kids come in and what's the goal? The goal is to win. However you can. Well, of course, play by the rules, right? Win any way you can. And um, it's been a journey as parents to disciple our kids through uh, competitive sports and how to not just win well, but how to lose well. And we've had, I mean, it's tough when you go home and you have a kid who just lost, who knew they should have won that match, and you're quiet in the car for half an hour because you know they're taking it really hard and tears are flowing, right? And uh, what do you say, right? You don't know what to say sometimes because they're taught by our culture that it's all about winning. And sometimes they're not really discipled well in how to lose well. Now, the particular sport involved here is tennis. And let me tell you why it's a frustrating sport. Not just for kids at times, but even for parents. In other sports like basketball and soccer and football and all those other sports, you sit in the stands as a parent, and what do you do? You go, woohoo, let's go, right? You're going, come on, team, come on, good shot. You know, and it's like, do this, and you're shouting at the ref. I know some of you would do that. And you're telling them what to do. You're coaching your kids from the sideline, aren't you? Right, let's go, come on, don't, watch out for that guy, no, don't do this, don't do that, right? And you're shouting out, now in tennis, you can't do that. Like they will, like you can sit and watch, right? And you can watch them, and, uh, but you can't like shout. <laughs> you can't even say, let's go. You can't even say, come on, focus. You can't say, come on, fight, right? None of that. We're, a couple of weeks back, we were at a tournament in Irvine, and I was sitting outside, standing outside the, uh, the court, watching my son play doubles, and there was another dad, the dad of the enemy, I mean, sorry, the dad of the opponent, and um, he was right next to me, and he was like telling his son, come on now, come on now, focus, focus, right? And he's pumping his son up, right? So what am I going to do? I'm going to pump my son up too. Am I going to out-pump me? So I was like, come on, Caleb. Come on, man. Fight. Good point. So I'm, I'm like, you know, we're like competing. And then the official comes up and stands right there. And the, I don't think the dad saw the official, but he's like, come on, pump. He's like, fight, focus, right? And the official turns to him and says, excuse me, sir, you can't say that. If you say that again, if you say something like that again, I'm going to have to ask you to leave, and I'm going to have to give the other team a point. And I was like, exactly. Serves you right. No, actually, I felt bad for the dad because I was doing the same thing. 
And so I went up to the official and I said, so could you please, official, clarify for me, what can we say? Can we go fight? Can we go good, good? She goes, no, you can't say any of that because you're telling them to do something. So I was like, so what can I say? She said, well, you can clap after every point. And then she said, you can also say good effort. So guess what I did the whole time? So frustrating. After every point, good effort. Great point. That's it. You see, I, told the, I wanted to say to the official, you know, listen, you don't understand. I want my kid to win. And they can't really win without me motivating them. <laughs> but she's been doing that for 25 years. She knows that it really doesn't matter. Tennis is all about, you know, playing within yourself and learning the discipline of focusing, right? But what is it in us that is constantly driven to win? What is it about winning that just says, that drives us? And uh, I think there's a lot of good reasons why winning is so important to us. One of them is, I think uh, sometimes we're, we're, we're just so consumed with winning that we are afraid of losing, and so whatever it takes. If you've ever played in sports, you know that saying, um, winning isn't everything, but it's better than losing, right? Listen, today, I want to share with you the fact that, ev- that losing can often be winning. There are benefits to losing as well. In fact, let me start by just sharing with you the dark side of winning. One of the things that can happen if you're always consumed with winning is you can get driven. You can become obsessed. And you have to be careful because you really can't love God you can't love others and you can't love yourself well if you're always driven. So sometimes being obsessed with winning will drive you and you don't want to be in that mode because what often results is you become, without you knowing it sometimes, you become prideful. The more you win, the more you'll have the tendency to let winning define your identity. And before you know it, You're too good, you're too successful, you're too experienced to take anyone's advice to listen to. You've got it all under control. You can do it on your own. And pride starts to slip in. And the problem with pride is it leads to what I call an unconscious superiority. Pretty soon, you may not be doing this like outwardly, but on the inside, you're looking down your nose towards other people who have not achieved in the same way you have and you're thinking thoughts like, uh, I'm better than that. I'm smarter, I'm prettier, I'm more popular, I'm more skilled, you see? It, it, it's subtle, isn't it? It's subtle. One minute you can be like humbling yourself before the Lord in worship, and the next minute you're like, Lord, I just worship you and praise you because I'm so humble, right? Pride is deceitful. So the downside of winning is that pride can slip in. Spiritual pride can slip in. So I want to share with you today the benefits of losing. When you begin to focus on Jesus, on Christ, uh, sorry, this is, there you go. That's what I wanted. Jesus said these words, whoever wants to save their life will what? Will lose it. But whoever loses their life 
for me will save it. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of reversals. It's upside down from the way the world sees it. In the kingdom, if you want to win, you have to lose. If you want to live, you have to die. If you want to become great, you must become the servant of all. That's how it is in the kingdom. Now, those of you who've lived enough life, you come to realize that winning is not everything, and you actually begin to see that losing has some hidden and very profound benefits if you're open to seeing them. Failure, weakness, losing, they all play a necessary role in redefining what it means to win. And it begins by looking at what some of the benefits of losing are. So I'm going to give you some benefits. You ready? You ready? Here are some of the benefits for uh, when, the hidden benefits of losing. First, one, first couple are losing is actually winning when it simplifies, say simplify, and clarifies your life. Believe it or not, there are some rich, rich blessings hidden in the losses of life. Whether it be a loss of a job, a loved one, a relationship, an investment, your health, sudden losses have a way of simplifying life. You start thinking about what's most important. You start thinking about your priorities and reevaluating what's, what's really important here. See, in life, there's some major league concerns, and then there are minor league concerns. And often, we get those two mixed up. We major in the minors, and we minor in the majors until we experience losing something. And losing, watch this, is an unwelcome invitation to examine our values and the way you actually think about the world. Because up till the point you lost whatever you lost, you weren't thinking about your values. You're just living them out. So that financial investment that went bad, that business partnership that turned sour, Maybe it's an invitation to take a deeper look at your life and ask yourself, what do you really believe about the role of money in your life? What is your real definition of success in life? How about that relationship that failed, that marriage that failed? Maybe it's an invitation to look at yourself and instead of blaming, instead of complaining, instead of accusing, take responsibility for your part in the breakdown. What about that job that you lost or the one that you didn't get? Maybe it's an invitation to re-examine the source of your confidence. How about that illness that you've been struggling with for years? God has not miraculously healed you. You've had to suffer. Now, by all means, ask God to continue to heal, to touch you with his healing power. Don't stop praying for healing. But listen, you know, how many of you remember Joni Erickson Tata? Do you remember her? She was a paraplegic that uh, was, uh, she had a, the, a, an accident when she was 17 and then she, she can't use basically any part of her body except this part, the, this top part of her body. And, and she has a worldwide ministry, man. And I remember reading something she wrote. She talked about how she, early on in her life when she had the accident, couldn't use any of her, her body from the neck down and she asked the Lord, Lord, why haven't you healed me? She constantly prayed for healing. And she went to Catherine Coleman meetings. Remember Catherine Coleman? Yeah. She was a big revivalist back in the day. And 
people would get healed and all that. She would go in those meetings in her wheelchair, and then she'd get ushered out of those meetings in a wheelchair. And she asked God, what is going on? And the Lord spoke to her one day and said to her that the healing he wants to accomplish in her is much deeper. Go for that healing. Stuff in her soul like pride. Stuff in her soul like worries that wouldn't go away. See? Greed and self-centeredness. God wants to heal our lives from those things. So, listen. When you're dealing with a chronic illness or some kind of prolonged suffering, maybe we need to experience that as an invitation to take a deeper look. A deeper look at what we really believe about God, about ourselves. I want to show this to you from Scripture. Jesus, there was a time in Jesus' life and ministry where his own disciples could not understand what he was talking about. Most of the time they didn't. But there's this one teaching that he gave that Jesus lost disciples over it. Remember when Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, and he starts talking about, and he started saying things like, unless you eat my flesh, and drink my blood, you have no part of me. (laughs) And his disciples, maybe they were just extreme like literalists or they just couldn't get the metaphor or whatever. It's said of his disciples that from that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him because they heard this teaching they couldn't understand. Now notice what Jesus does not do. When he wa- Imagine Jesus teaching this, and all of a sudden his disciples are like, well, hang on, that's way over our heads, Jesus. I don't get that. What are you talking Drink your blood, eat your flesh. What? I'm done with this. I'm out of here. Notice Jesus doesn't go after them. Notice he doesn't go, whoa, 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 whoa. It was just a metaphor. Yeah, I didn't mean for you to take it literally. Jesus is not going after these folks who leave. Why? Because he's, he's focused. Yes, it's a hard teaching. Yes, it's a metaphor. Yes, I'm using figurative language. But if, you're not, if you don't get it by now, folks, I'm about to go to the cross. If you don't like what I'm teaching right now, you're not going to like the cross. And I'm focused. And <laughs> it's funny because uh, there's something going on deeper here. Jesus is basically saying, if you're going to follow me, it's not going to be popular. There's going to be things you don't quite fully understand yet. When you get to the cross, when I die, you're not going to fully understand that yet. So he looks at his other disciples and he says, you want to leave too? The 12 disciples, right? Turns to him. You don't want to leave too, do you? And watch this. This is the moment of truth. The Jesus camp has just lost a bunch of followers. And Jesus turns to the rest of them. And he basically says, how are you going to handle this loss? You're going to jump ship? You're going to abandon the mission, the cause? You're going to turn on me? What are you going to do? Or will this loss clarify and simplify your life? Simon Peter Peter answers Jesus, and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
Here's the moment of clarity. It just hit me, Jesus. Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. There's no other option. Yeah, I know they didn't get what you were saying. And honestly, Jesus, I'm not sure if I get it either. But something has become clear to me right now. In the backdrop of all the people who just left and the loss we just experienced, I realized you have, you still got the words of eternal life. I may not know what they mean exactly, but something in me says, stick with Jesus. Keep trusting Jesus. Because bottom line, where are we going to go? Back to our fishing nets? Some of you need to come to this point of simplicity in your life. And you need to stop being tempted by your old life and by those old relationships and by the old things that you used to do that you knew were not constructive or healthy. And you need to come to the place where you say, God, where am I going to go? Am I going to go back there to Egypt, back to bondage, back to the old friends, the old habits? Am I going back there? And the answer is, of course, no. But some of you haven't reached that point of clarity yet. And it's sometimes the losses in life that cause you to realize the real reasons you're going back to that old life. And to clarify, you know what? It's not worth going back to. Amen? Tell the person next to you, it's not worth going back to. It's not worth it. Go ahead, tell them. It's not worth it. So stop. Jesus had, look, look what Peter says further. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Folks, that's not a religious statement. That's not, he's just not reciting some doctrinal creed. Peter's saying, I've come to know by experience. I've spent enough time. I've watched you work, Jesus. I know you're the one. We're going to follow, even though we can't understand what you're saying sometimes. Even though we don't understand at this point why you're even talking about a crucifixion. Because the disciples had no clue. The loss clarified and simplified their life. Some of you need clarity. Some of you need simplicity. You know, we were in Alaska this past week, and I had to share this because this was so cool. And uh, we went camping. <laughs> and uh, my mother-in-law up there, she, she rented this RV. So maybe it was not camping, maybe it was glamping. All right, glamping, okay. Those of you who like camp. And we told all the kids and the cousins, you know, there's about, oh, there's a bunch of them. They're all like, you know, 15 and under, except for Matt and Miles. Anyway, we told them, look, when we go on this camping trip, on our way over there, it's three hours to drive there, no iPads, no iPhones, no technology. Shut it off. So they go, ah, 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 all right, all right, all right. So we're driving, right? An hour into the trip, a miracle happens. I'm sitting in the front seat, and my kids and their cousins are in, in the back, sitting around the table, you know, lying out on the couch and stuff. 
And I hear one of them say these words. They said, hey, okay, they're talking to each other now. They said, hey, so what do you want to be when you grow up? I almost fell out of my chair. I'm like, you know what? That's normally a question that I'm asking them. Now they're asking each other. All of a sudden, they start talking. Oh, I want to be this. I don't know if I want to be that. I think I want to be that. Oh, if you do that, you do this. And all of a sudden, this thing called conversation starts to happen, and I couldn't believe it. I was witnessing a miracle. I turned around, got out of my chair. I sat down at the table in the middle of the conversation, listening to these 15, 14, 12, 11, my youngest is 11, talking about what they wanted to be when they grow up. And we started talking. And we talked for like an hour. And I went, I remember the days when that's what you did on a long trip. I don't even know how that connected, man. I just, simplicity. Sometimes you just need the simplicity. Turning off all the technology, right? And, and loss has a way of getting us to that point, all right? So you get that point. Losses can clarify and simplify. The other thing losses can do, well, I was going to share with you some of how we learn. I'm going to skip this part because I, I got a really cool story to teach you. Losing has its benefits when it purifies your life and when it unifies your life. You can redefine losing as winning when the effect of it and the impact of it is to purify you and to unify you. Um, let, let me give you an example from the Bible. King David. Few people experienced a victorious life like King David. He was like Israel's greatest hero in the history of Israel. He was a victorious king, subdued all his enemies. The kingdom under David grew to its uh, furthest borders that it had ever known. And yet, there was one thing that David didn't conquer. What was it? <laughs> you remember. Yeah, he, the lust of the flesh. I, he, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and he murdered her husband. And that series of sins set off a series of losses in his life. Within a short time of him committing adultery and committing murder, he lost face before his people. He lost a confrontation with the prophet Nathan. And perhaps the most devastating, he lost the son that he would have had with Bathsheba. Three staggering losses. Remember how David responded? He knew that the son was about to die, the baby was about to die, so he fasted for six days and six nights, and what happened? The son, the baby died. After the baby died, David gets up, washes his garments, washes himself, he goes into the temple, the house of the Lord, and he worships God. And many scholars believe that this is the context in which David writes the prayer, Psalm 51, which begins, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Right? To, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Here we go. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my... What? Why? 
It would have been months that had gone by. Only now David is confessing. Only now David is praying to God, right? Because the loss of the child, perhaps, awakens David to the grievous nature of his sin. And it leads him to a point where he can say, God, cleanse me. It leads him to a place of purity. Search me and know me, God. There's a sense in which the losses we experience in life can expose impure motives in our own hearts. Isn't that true? Things that we didn't know were there that all of a sudden, because we lost, we're like, man, why am I so angry? Why am I so bitter? I didn't know it was there. Exactly. Let the losses lead you to a place of asking God for cleansing. And guess what? Will he do it? You bet he will. You bet he will. The other thing losses do is they unify our lives. Let me give you an example of this. Um, the Bible often talks about the fellowship of the suffering. There's something about stripping away all the falseness when you're relating to people. And when you experience raw suffering and you're able to, um, to be with people in those places, there's something about that that's unifying. Years ago, I was asked to speak at a men's camp for uh, our Foursquare district. And I remember going up to that camp as Camp Cedarcrest, and uh, it was our first time uh, going to that camp. Like 200 men, all right, from different churches, four-square churches in, in, in our district, and I, and uh, you could tell, okay, like you walked in, and uh, these guys weren't, you know, you know, you know, like people that are barely saved, right? They're, they're kind of rough around the edges. You could tell that they hadn't been Christians or churchgoers all their life, but they were, they were worshiping God, they were into everything that was going on, right? And then I found out later that some of these guys uh, come from these men's, men's ministries in other, these other churches, and, and some of these men's ministries are actually recovery programs. So I realized, oh, okay, these guys were in, are in recovery, okay, great. I'm like, this is gonna be interesting. So, um, as I'm experiencing this retreat with these guys, I'm supposed to speak to them on Saturday night, right? I'm realizing, man, you know what? These guys are authentically worshiping God. They have nothing to hide. You know, they're not like comparing each other with each other. They're, they're here and they're broken because they've all come from very broken lives. So I'm, wow, there's an interesting, there's a beautiful sense of the presence of God here. Well, that night, I was supposed to bring a message, but I didn't feel comfortable with what I was about to, to share to these guys. So I just prayed. Like most of the afternoon, I was just praying. Like, God, what do you want me to share? I don't feel like this is it. And, um, and I just prayed. And when the evening came, they started the worship. And how many of you have been in those services where the minute the worship starts, you know, this is not going to go the way we thought it was going to go. God sh is showing up. It was the presence of God fell on that place. It was so thick, you know, and, and I'm, I'm standing there worshiping. I'm crying. I'm watching these guys around me broken, just giving themselves to the Lord, just, you know, passionately blessing him. And I, I didn't know what to say. But in those moments, I realized I was, that Jesus loves to stand in the loser's 
circle. Because many of these guys wouldn't be the kinds of guys you would say are successful in life. They're kind of sketchy, actually. (laughs) Truth be told. But God showed up. I didn't even preach that night. I just got up, gave a little exhortation, and the Spirit of God moved. And that's all they needed. I could feel a sense of cohesiveness and unity in the room that I had never felt in a long time. I hadn't felt in a long time. Because I was sitting in a room with men who in the world's eyes would have been labeled losers. When you step into the loser's circle, it's amazing how often you'll find God there. All of a sudden, you realize you're not alone. Losing is winning, not only when it simplifies and clarifies your life, but when it purifies and unifies your life. So let me... Let me paraphrase this, and I'll bring this to a close. Jesus says, whoever loses his life or her life, in other words, whoever unplugs from the world's system that separates life into winners and losers and chooses to stand in the loser's circle for my sake will save it. How do we apply this today? Let me give you a few thoughts, and then I'm done. You ready? First of all, say guard. Guard your heart. That's obvious. Guard your heart against pride, especially when you're on a winning streak. Oh, pastor, it's been so good this week. Man, I've been victorious over every sin this week. Hallelujah. Awesome, man. Praise God. Just watch out for tomorrow, okay? (laughs) Guard your heart against pride. Give God all the glory. Worship him for your abilities when you end up winning. But watch your heart and soul because sometimes when you get on a roll, winning uh, can become idolatrous. So guard your heart. Second thing, if you want to, say this with me, choose to lose once in a while. Okay, seriously. Like consider a premeditated loss. Take something that's important to you and give it to someone who needs it. Lose a bag of groceries for a hungry person or to a food pantry. Cancel a debt somebody owes you. Take a plaque off of, take a, an honorary plaque off the wall in your library or in your home. Thank God you achieved it. Give him glory, but take it down, put it away. Choose to lose. Lose an hour in worship to God. Lose face in order to initiate a reconciliation with someone whom you've been waiting for them to initiate. No, no, no. They were the one who wronged me. They need to initiate and come to me and ask forgiveness. Well, why don't you lose face for a bit and initiate that reconciliation? Stand in the loser's circle. I used to say, eat humble pie. And make the call that your pride does not want to make. Be like Jesus. Philippians 2 says, who for the, right, who laid aside his privileges as God and humbled himself, became, took the very nature of a servant, 
humbled himself all the way to the point of death on the cross. That verse says, have the same attitude that Jesus had. In other words, choose to lose once in a while. This isn't upward mobility because our culture tells us to be upwardly mobile. This is downward mobility. This is Jesus descending the ladder into greatness. That's how we need to think when we're in the kingdom of God. Have that attitude in you. Choose to lose once in a while. Determine beforehand to let loss do a good work in your life. Because let me tell you something. If you haven't experienced losing, you're going to. <laughs> it's just a fact of life. Most people experience losing. But what they don't do is they don't determine beforehand how to handle the loss when it comes. And sometimes you can prepare for that, sometimes you can't. But listen, if you determine beforehand to let the losses of life do a good work in you, then when the losses come, you won't have clenched fists towards God. You'll have open hands. Instead of saying, God, why? You're going to be going, God, what, what, what is it? What gift in the chaos are you trying to bring to me? You see? Like Joni Erickson Tada, right? I don't understand why you put me through this lifetime of suffering. But my hands are open. I want to receive the blessing that's hidden in the midst of the bitter situation. Okay. So sometimes you've got to take, you've got to determine beforehand, I'm going to let this work, its, work good into my life. Lastly, risk, say risk, because it is a risk, entering into the losses of others. Risk entering into the losses of others. Like, practically speaking, look for opportunities to bear other people's burdens. Look for the circle of losers and stand in line to get into that circle with someone and experience the fellowship of suffering. Every year, my mother-in-law gives us a gift, a financial gift. She gives it to all of her grandkids and her sons-in-law <laughs> and her kids. And she tells us, I want you to take this amount of money and it's not for you. I want you to pray and ask God whom you are to bless with this money. Right? So, it's the second year we've done it. So this year we, we got a gift of find out the kids got their share of that gift and and it's a discipleship tool. We tell our kids, you know, pray, seek God, ask the Lord how He wants you to, to give this away. And so our kids are doing this, and of course, you know, my two boys this year, my, my son tried to sponsor someone from World Vision, right? So he goes, Dad, I think I want to sponsor a child from World Vision. I'm like, where'd you get that idea, you know? He's like, oh, someone was talking about it. I go, okay, cool, fine. So he gets on the website, and he's like, how do you do this? Like, I don't know. And he's like, I go, son, if you sponsor a child from World Vision, um, just remember, this is not a one-time gift. You're going to have to give this again next month. And he's like, oh, really? <laughs> I'm like, yep. He's like, oh, I don't know about that anymore, you know. Um, so, so we're thinking about where to give our gift. And in my heart, <clears throat> I felt like the Lord wanted me to revisit 
the, the need in our, at our Harbor City campus in the community at Harbor City, which is there's a lot of homeless people in our, in, um, near the Harbor City campus. They literally just camp out down the street from us, from where the church is. This has been the way it's been for years, okay? So I know some of these folks, you know, they used to come to our church, and some of them come in and out and whatnot. Um, but I felt like I had not been in touch with that need. I hadn't really uh, gone to see what was going on. Uh, so I felt like the Lord wanted me to use that money to just invest it in some way, shape, or form in that homeless community. So I waited and waited, and, you know, in the back of my mind, you know, I've got this, this money that's burning a hole in my pocket, and I'm like, how am I going to use this? So my plan was to go to the Salvation Army, which is right next to the homeless camp, which is right down the street from our church. And so my plan was to go over there, talk to the people who own or who run the Salvation Army, and just say, hey, is there any way that you can use this money to get food or clothes or whatever, programs and stuff like that for the homeless community? They're like, so I was, that was my plan. So here comes the day. Um, I'm planning to go down there, and my son comes up to me and says, Dad, I don't know who to give my money to. I've been praying. How do you know when God tells you? <laughs> and I said, well... Sometimes it's just a thought that comes to your mind. I was trying to, you know, teach him how to hear the voice of God. He's like, nothing's coming. I don't know. I said, well, how about this? I'm going over to the Salvation Army today. Why don't you come with me? And if you want, if God tugs on your heart, maybe you can, we can just pool our money and give it to the Salvation Army to help the homeless. So my, all my kids, it's summer, right? So they're all home. So they're listening to this. Like, I want to go. I want to go. I want. So I take all three of my kids we drive down to um, the street where the homeless camp is. And where the homeless camp is, it looks like that. This is right, right across, the, right down the street from our church. <clears throat> so, <laughs> you gotta understand, my kids, they have a perception of, of homeless people that is, of course, you know, they're a little scared. And who wouldn't be, right? You know, these, they're strange people, they're kinda, they look funny, they, you know, they, they're mentally ill, whatever it might be. They've heard all this stuff. So when, they, when I told them we're going down there, they're like, okay, Dad, is it safe? Is it safe? I'm like, you'll be fine. You just stay with me. So we drive out there. We park the car literally on the side of, of Lomita Boulevard. And I'm going to go into the Salvation Army, but it's closed. They closed the gates. All there was was this camp, literally, right here down the street. If you follow this street down where you see that dump truck, you keep going. That's our Harbor City campus, the end of that street. So I walk out, and I say, come on, kids. The kids are coming with me. We find somebody. We're talking to them. And um, one of them's name is Mike. The other one's Angela. I said to them, hey, guys, um, listen, like, uh, we want to we be a blessing. Me and my kids want to be a blessing in some small way. Uh, I'm a pastor down the street at this church. You guys know which church. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, um, what do you guys need? I mean, you know, I assume you need food, but I don't know, because it, look, it looks like you've got a lot of food right now. I assume you need clothes. But looks like you got the Salvation Army giving you clothes regularly. What do you need? And they told us, they said, you know what? We could use some socks. And we could use some water. I'm like, really? All right. My kids are right there, right? <laughs> and so I turn around and I say, hey, I think we can do that. I have an idea. So we walk away. I said, we'll be right back. Okay, okay. We walk away and my kids say to me, Dad, the homeless... They're really nice people. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that was just a few of them that you met right there. Yeah. So we go back, 
And we go, to the, we go to this special store. This is funny. It's the store that sells all the uniforms for all you folks, you know, working in the medical field, right? They sell all the uniforms, right? The minute we walk into the store, right, literally, the first thing you see is sale on socks. I couldn't believe it. I almost fell out of my chair. I was like, guys, I go, look at this. They told us they needed socks. We came here to buy socks, and look what greeted us at the door. Socks for sale. You know what I was saying to them, right? Jesus is at work right now. He's doing something here. We're on the right track. So my kids are picking out socks. You can buy a lot of socks on sale for $180, by the way. I just wanted you to know. (laughs) We picked up a bunch of socks. And we went to the 99-cent store and got a bunch of water, like eight jugs of water and stuff. And we go back to the camp, and we start walking. And they start introducing us, like, oh, yeah, just go ahead. You know, here, take this. And one of the ladies was so nice. She's like, here, I'll take you over there. And we start distributing socks, water. And guess what I bought? Because I'm so, like, sensitive to the needs of the homeless. I bought a big old jar of sanitizer. (laughs) Here, take some sanitizer. Thank you. Halfway through, here I am. I'm talking, right? I'm talking with some of these folks, telling them who I am. I, I said my name out loud to somebody. And behind me, this gentleman comes up and says, I said, I, I'm telling this, this one gal, yeah, my name is Ken, Ken, Ken Bringus, and you know, I passed down the, down, the, down the street. And then I hear a voice behind me go, Ken Bringus? Fell Bringus' son? I turned around, and there's this gruffy-looking dude long hair down here. He doesn't have an eye. Well, he has an eye, but his eye is like inset because it looks like he got injured. Um, so he can't see out of this eye. And he's like, he goes, you're Thelbringus' son? I'm like, yeah, man. I go, who are you? He goes, it's me, Raulo. Raulo? Who's Raulo? He goes, yeah, man. He goes, my, your dad baptized me at Venice Beach, man, like 15 years ago or 20 years ago or something like that. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Really? And then it started coming back. I remember you, man. You had a buddy named Stevie. You guys used to be in a band, right? This and that, this and that. He's like, yeah, man, yeah, that's me, that's me. I'm like, dude. I'm like, and guess what my next question is, right? Like, what? How did this happen? How did you end up here in this homeless camp? Ah, oh, it's a long story, man, but I'm good. I'm fa- I love Jesus. I'm following him, man. I'm not doing drugs. I'm not doing anything. He could have been been lying out of his teeth. I don't know. Whatever. The powerful thing was, (laughs) Raulo, I know him now as Alex. I don't know why he changed his name or whatever. But we started talking. My kids watched me as I was connecting with this guy. I'm like, hey, man, meet my kids. This is Raulo. I call him Alex. I think his real name is Alex, right, Dad? He goes, dude, tell your father I said hi. (laughs) Listen, I don't know, but that experience sealed it for me. God wanted me and my kids that day to stand in the loser's circle, to choose to hang out with losers, 
that we're really not losers. They're just our homeless neighbors. And he used us to be good neighbors that day. Sometimes when you stand in the loser circle and you choose to do so, you can learn some of the greatest lessons in life. The greatest opportunities for growth sometimes only present themselves through losing and loss. In this case, I don't know, man. I went there to the homeless camp to be a blessing, maybe to teach my kids a little lesson. I think they learned it. But I left being the one who felt blessed by a dude who came out of our past as a church and just so happened to be hanging out and living in a homeless camp right down the street I pastored 25 years later. Tell me, is that not the Lord? He says to me, you know, Ken, he goes, people misunderstand our community. I know there's a lot of problems here. He goes, but you know, there's some of us that are clean. Yeah, we need help, <laughs> but we love Jesus. I'm like, dude, I'm so, glad you, I'm so glad to hear you say that. And I left rem remind, rem remembering the words of Jesus when he said, you'll always have the poor with you. Maybe God is asking you in some way, shape, or form to stand in the loser's circle, to humble yourself. For some of you, it might mean asking for forgiveness. For some of you, it might mean taking a risk to stand with people that have a bad reputation. <laughs> if God leads you to do so, he's doing it because you're going to learn some of the greatest lessons that life can teach you. When you're winning, they say this even in tennis, when you're winning, you don't learn anything. The greatest lessons you learn are when you're losing. You don't want to improve when you're winning. When you're losing, you go back going, you know what? How can I be better? How can I invest my time to build character? You see? Tell the person next to you, choose to lose. You're not a loser if you choose to lose. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Yeah, I know. We're at the end of our time today, but I want to pray over you. And I, want, I wonder if maybe God may be tugging on some of your hearts to just to remind you, don't despise the losses of your life. Let it be an opportunity to evaluate what you really believe, to clarify what is most important to you. And when it's all said and done, Christ really needs to be the only thing that matters. Where shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And it's with that sense of humility and some level of desperation, God, that we come to you and we realize all the things that you've delivered us out of, the life, Lord, the old life, the way we used to be, God, we don't want to go back to that.